Well, here we are continuing in Mark chapter 12. And um, along the way, I've just been fascinated by what we found, right? There's been so many different genres, so many different narratives, so many different approaches, and so many different things that as, as a preacher, I come to a text and I say, okay, what are, what are we supposed to do here? We're supposed to see, what are we supposed to understand? Where is the congregation these days? Where are, what do they know? What do they understand? What do they need to be challenged in according to this scripture? And, and sometimes you just run across a, a short little passage and you say, man, there's so much work in here that we just don't understand by nature. And unfortunately, much of it we don't understand because we just haven't been taught or because we haven't paid attention. And so this morning, there will be a portion of what we do together this morning that's just simple teaching. Just bringing us up to speed on some of the history, some of the context, so that we can have understanding of the argument that Jesus is making here. All right, we don't understand so much of what Jesus says because we are not enculturated into what it is, the context into which he drops this bit of truth, okay? And so we'll do that. And the second thing is sometimes we run across a, a passage that there's not like some great application point. You know, you're not like, and so believe this about God and so be changed. There's just, what in the world? Like that happened. <laughs> that is amazing. I can't believe we get to know that. All right? I like that. I, I, I'm a truth knower. I, I find truth to be amazing. And when it's revealed, when it's shown, when I get to see it, when I get to discover something, I'm kind of satisfied with just being amazed. I think there's something in our passage this morning, if you'll wait for it, if you'll do the business, if you'll lean into it, you're just going to be amazed. And you're going to find, I think that's good business for a Sunday morning. Let's just be amazed in worship. So this morning, we have in our passage Psalm 110. You can write that in the margin of your Bible. It's probably in a footnote somewhere. That is what is being quoted. And today, as we look closely at this psalm, Jesus uses it to reveal himself, which is good news because that's what we want. It's why we've gathered. We've gathered to make much of Jesus. And if he'd reveal himself to us, we can worship him all the more. And that's what he does for us this morning. Today, we see Jesus defeating the assaults of his opponents and showing himself on this day to be master of the day. One commentator puts it that way, that this is Jesus being showing himself to be master of the day. In chapter 12, Jesus has answered three parties of the Sanhedrin, the great ruling body in Jerusalem. They've come to him each one at a time with questions looking to entrap him. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they've all come to him. They've asked him questions about taxes. I mean, if you want to trip somebody up, ask him a question about taxes. Don't ask me, okay? If you want to trip somebody up, you ask him a question about marriage. And then you draw a parallel between marriage and the resurrection, all right? And they're asking him hard questions. And then they ask him a question about what is God's greatest commandment. That's not even a fair question. And yet, each time, they, as they've sought to trap Jesus with these questions, as they come to him in the temple and as he's teaching them, Jesus overcomes their efforts with a beautiful display, not only of wisdom, but also of authority. One of the things that kind of bothers me, I remember this was true when I was in college, I had a pastor that said this a lot. He used to say, well, I believe that, and I'm like, I really don't care what you believe. I may be a curiosity over coffee, but you're preaching. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what's true? You know, 
And one of the things that Jesus does is he doesn't say, well, my perspective on this matter and the perspective of the rabbis that have come before me, right? He doesn't just show himself to be wise in what he believes. He shows himself to have authority because he declares what is true and he lets it sit. And man, it's just drop the mic moment after drop the mic moment in chapter 12. If you haven't been with us, go back and read them. They're amazing. What a beautiful display. This is where this whole episode began. It actually began by the Sanhedrin coming to Jesus, and they had a question about his authority. And, and back there, at the beginning, at the end of chapter 11, I think it was, when his authority is challenged, he doesn't give them a direct answer to his question. Now, we looked at it. He does answer their question if they're paying attention. But rather, he recognizes that their question about his authority was a trap. And so the point of their questioning is to continue to try to catch him in a trap. But what Jesus demonstrates is he has authority to reveal all things. He doesn't share what he thinks about a matter. He doesn't share from tradition alone, but rather he stands up and declares the truth because he is the authority on the matter. And here we are at the end of chapter 12. Look at verse 34 with me. We didn't read it yet. It's right before our passage this morning. Verse 30, 34, Jesus, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, I'm sorry, I've got, yeah, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, after he answers this question, this third and final question from the authorities who are challenging them, it says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He won. Debate's over. Uh, they, they didn't rest their argument. They just slunk away, right? But Jesus isn't done. He's got some closing arguments himself. You guys are done asking me questions, but I've got more to say. As one commentator, James Edwards, says, Jesus has bested the field and the debate is closed. But Jesus does not quit the field. However, but he takes it. All right, Jesus is not done doing work. The questions are finished. No one else will be bringing any questions. No more leaders are going to approach him until they approach him to arrest him. But Jesus is not done teaching the people. And here's why. You can ask Jesus questions all day. But you know what that does? It makes us dependent upon coming up with all the right questions. But Jesus knows the truth and he knows what we need to know. And what for us to truly know God, God has to come to us and reveal himself to us. And that's what he does. The questions have been insufficient to truly reveal the Christ. So the Christ stands up and continues to teach. The leaders and the people, they have lots of questions, but at some point their questions are exhausted. But to truly know Jesus, we need revelation. The words from the mouth of the master to tell us, who he is. So let's listen. This is what the Father, after all, has called us to do. Let us give attention to Christ's words. Look at verses 35 and 36 with me. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? So he's bringing a question for the people who were just trying to question him. David himself said, in, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Now I want to pause there before we actually re look at what David in the Holy Spirit declared. And just pause and say, did you hear that? 
He's about to quote Psalm 110, and yet he says, David, in the Holy Spirit, declared. Now, this is where we need to do a little bit of business. King David, who is he? David is the second king of Israel. He comes after Saul. He's the first in the line of the Davidic kings. He's not a descendant of Saul. He is in the establishment of a new dynasty. After Saul was rejected and removed by the Lord, God establishes David as the king of Israel. And he's not the first, but he is the greatest of the kings of Israel. And and while his son Solomon was handed the kingdom at its height, to which David had established it by the blessing of the Lord as he followed after the Lord, not only in faith, but also repentance. And David's great. And he's amazing. Go look at the accomplishments of King David. They're amazing. He's also a failure. But he knew what the prayer of repentance is. And he repented. And he came back to the heart of the Lord as he sought the Lord and received grace. And so he was a great king, not only in his greatness, but also in his humility before the Lord. Solomon receives this great kingdom, and the kingdom's at its height, and and he even flourished in the midst of the people with great wealth and great wisdom. By this point, there are, in spite of all the greatness of the kingdom, there's evidence of decline. So that soon after David There was a breach in the kingdom. The kingdom is torn in two. David's son just listens to young advisors and acts foolishly. The kingdom is ripped into two. And there is a decline that continues to that place to where there are just about no good kings after David or Solomon. Now with this longing, there's a longing that rises with the division of the kingdom and its decline. There's a longing among the people for a restoration. And if you want to be restored, what do you want to be restored to? Well, wouldn't it be great to be great like King David was great? And a longing arises in the people for a return to King David, a return to the ways of the kingdom under the blessing of God and his promise. And with this longing came a reflection on the promises of God and upon a line that begins with King David. And there be, there's also further prophecy of a future king in the line of David, a king whose kingdom would be established forever. Now, it's this David of whom Jesus speaks in our passage today. Are you with me so far? So David was not only a king, he's also a writer of psalms. All right, he's a musician. I was just reflecting with a friend this week that that David, in writing psalms, he didn't just sit down and say, I'm going to write this for the church. I'm confident that most of the psalms that he he writes were written down versions of of the songs that he sang back when he was a shepherd on a hill with a bunch of sheep with a lot of time on his hands to think and to sing. He's a musician. We're going to look at this closer in a minute, but in this passage we see that David has an opportunity in our passage Today, in reflection on Psalm 119, David has an opportunity to look into the divine counsel of the heavenly places. I said that right. David looks into the divine counsel of the heavenly places. He's a prophet, and he's revealing the things of God. But when, when you look at David and what he records in the psalm, one of the first things that we ought to be is amazed. It's a prophetic, poetic record of a conversation between the Father and the Son. The Lord God 
said to my Lord, David says. You know, I've eavesdropped on a variety of conversations in my life. But I've never just been sitting there writing down a psalm. Been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to listen to the conversation between the Father and the Son. That should amaze us right there. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the Son, herein made public for the refreshing of his people. Do you hear that? We don't need Psalm 110 for God and the Father and the Son to do their thing. We don't need access to that. But he gives us access so that we might be confident, so that we might be encouraged, so we might be refreshed by a knowledge of the divine counsel. David glimpses the Trinity at work, Father and Son, and David himself inspired by the Spirit to record for us this divine conversation in the throne room of heaven. Jesus, as he quotes this psalm, points to the third member of the Trinity. You saw it in verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. The psalm is not merely of David. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And we should pause there and recognize that when we're reading the Gospel of Mark, we are not merely reading the, the recounting of the Apostle Peter to a fellow disciple, Mark, who then records it for us. We are hearing the words of the Holy Spirit. We're hearing the words of our God, the activity of the Trinity. And Jesus himself is affirming this about the Scriptures. So, what is Jesus' purpose is bringing up this question and quoting this psalm? I hope that background encourages us. Friends, you have the word. You have access to the words of the Spirit of God recorded for us today. What is Jesus doing here? What, the reason why he's quoting this psalm and the point that he's making is that Jesus is more than the son of David. I've mentioned this before. There's a long history of a messianic expectation, an expectation of a Messiah, the word Messiah and Christ. It's actually the same word. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. We tend to use the word Christ a lot. Jesus Christ just means Jesus the Messiah. Christ and Messiah both mean this. It's actually not just a a title sort of word. It's a descriptive word. It means anointed one, like the way that you would anoint a king or the way that you would anoint a priest to their office and role that they occupy. There's a long history of an expectation that an anointed priest king is coming. The people of God, they've waited long for the restoration of the kingdom of David, and they're looking for somebody to be anointed who's in the line of David to reestablish an anointing for David's line and so establish a kingdom forever. The Messianic expectation is a thread that runs through so much of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And really, a lot of that thread begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read a few of these Messianic expectations. And I encourage you, jot them down so you can go back and remember them, so you can teach yourself to understand the thread that's woven throughout the Scriptures. The Lord is speaking to David, and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... 
I will raise up for you offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Like I'm rolling along, I'm like, oh, he's talking about Solomon. I mean, Solomon's going to build the temple, build the house for him. And then he says this little thing, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That didn't happen. Solomon dies too. You know what happens to Solomon's son? He rips the kingdom in half and then he dies. And on and on and on. And there's an expectation. The Lord does not lie. He keeps his covenant. How is this fulfilled? Surely there's an anointed one who is coming that will fulfill this scripture. Long after the kingdom's in decline, far from its height with King David, Isaiah speaks. And he speaks of Jesse. All right, our, the, what we're going to read in just a second says, talks about Jesse. Jesse is actually David's father, so he's actually speaking about the line of David. Okay, Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A shoot from a stump. So the stump, it, something's happened. It's been cut off, right? The kingdom's in decline. And yet there's going to be new life that a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Someone's coming, and it's from the same family tree, just when you thought all hope was lost. Turns out it's a child in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. You guys know this, right? To us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There is a child who is coming. And he's in the line of David from the stump of Jesse. The prophets, they continue to speak of the Messiah who's so closely linked with David, this expectation of the son of David who is to come. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd. What's his name? Well, my servant David, that's his name. That's the shepherd who's coming, my servant David. And he shall feed them and he shall... Feed them and be their shepherd. There's a shepherd coming who's just like David was a shepherd in the line of David in fulfillment of this longing expectation of the fulfillment of the promise of God. And the same sort of expectation is picked up surrounding the incarnation of Jesus. Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist. He offers this prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and redeemed his people. How did he do it? How's he going to redeem? He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, strength of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Do you hear it? The time's coming. Here comes the anointing moment. Here comes the restoration and salvation. And they're still looking for the son of David. Okay? By this time, the kingdom isn't just in decline. It's weathered exile and return. It's suffered conflict with the rise and fall of many of the surrounding nations. And now it's suffering subjugation by the Roman Empire. It's into that context that we get dropped. So you can see why the expectation of a Savior is so important in the moment in which we find Jesus. So the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, and he says this. He, that is the child, that will be in Mary, will be called great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It's basically a repetition of where we started, right? 
way back in Samuel. The long line of promises, centuries-old messianic expectation is fulfilled in Mary. And the child in her womb, here he is, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David. The center of the expectation is that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be the son of David, as foreseen descendant of that great king, David. So what's Jesus' problem here? Look at our passage. Look at it with me. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. I'm sorry, his question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? I don't know, because the Bible's pretty much made that argument the whole time. Like mostly. That. Here's the deal. Jesus is not refuting that. Jesus as is very clear, and the, the, the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He gives testimony to it in the very next words that he says. He's not making an argument that the Messiah, the anointed one, would come in the line of David. But if you think he's a mere child of David, that's where your error is. And so his question, the Christ is the son of David. He is a descendant of David, but he's more. David himself declared, look at the words, The Lord said to my Lord. It's always complicated when you use the same word twice, but you mean two different things, right? So it's actually why it's actually helpful to go back to Psalm 110. And if you look at what Jesus is quoting there, in in our English translations, it's captured by when the word Lord is recorded, the word that stands behind that in the original languages, is actually Yahweh. And in, you, in your English translations, more than likely, when it says the Lord in the first place, it's actually written with four capital letters. Capital L and then a little bit smaller, but still capital O-R-D in Psalm 110 as a translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's because the word that's being translated as Lord in respect to the name, because you don't want to use the name in vain, And so it gets translated and even written in Hebrew by using the words Lord. But really what is there is the divine name of God. And so everyone understands that Jesus is speaking to, and we ought to understand, that it says Yahweh, the divine name of God, the Holy One, the one true God, and there is no other, said to my Lord. Now, that's not a problem so far. We got Yahweh. Of course, he's the one that's speaking. The Lord is speaking, right? But then look what he says. The Lord turns and says to my Lord. The Lord said something to an otherwise unnamed Lord. It's not David. Because David's the one that's speaking. He's saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said something to my Lord, to David's Lord, an unnamed Lord thus far. And what did he say? Sit at my right hand. The Lord God said to an unnamed Lord, master of David, sit at my right hand. Sit in the place of honor and authority until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, whoever this Lord is, he has no enemies because his kingdom is forever. Friends, what this is, it's, this is a glimpse into what 
called the covenant of grace. This is a glimpse into the moment in which the anointed one will triumph over sin, death, and the devil. It's David, just a king, just a boy compared to the rest of his brothers, just a king, just a man anointed by God, gets a glimpse of the throne room conversation between the Lord God making a covenant with my Lord. Who's David talking to? And that's what what Jesus is calling their attention to. He's not arguing with... Yeah, whoever he's talking to is actually the son of David. He's the anointed one. This is a messianic expectation. He's going to be a descendant of David. And yet here's David speaking to his descendant as my Lord. That doesn't make any sense. If you're the child of someone, you that someone is under your authority. The son of David is under David's honor. The son of David is under David's authority. And the only hope that that son has is to try and be like dad someday. But that's not what, G, what, what David says in this psalm. He isn't arguing that the Messiah isn't a descendant of David. Only more than that, he was before David. See, sons come after fathers. But this son of David was before David. He was not only the son of David. He is David's own Lord. How could he be David's superior if he's merely a descendant? That's Jesus' argument here. How is he the son of David if he's David's Lord, the implication is clear. Jesus doesn't even need to say it for the people to understand. The Messiah, the anointed one, is not just the son of David. The Messiah, David's Lord, is the son of God. This is radical. This is world-changing. That the Messiah isn't just a man in the line of David whom God protects his kingdom. He is God in the line of David who keeps his own kingdom. He's the Lord of all the kings that have come before. People have prophesied, angels have spoken, blind men and celebratory crowds have exclaimed, the apostles have borne witness, and Jesus himself has unequivocally revealed Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. But he's not simply from David. He is also the son of God. He is from God. And we get to listen in on that conversation. I want to point us to Romans chapter 1. I think Romans chapter 1 is a great sort of blowing up of what Jesus is speaking here. In Romans chapter 1, in in Paul's first words, like when I write notes to people, I'm like, hey, what's going on? How's it going? It's going all right here these days. You know, I sound like a junior high note, you know, that gets passed around the classroom. Paul just jumps into it. In his letter, he writes this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, get out of the way, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, by the way. The gospel of God, and he's already thinking. His mind's already rolling, and he's going to give us some truth bombs. He says, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. What's that in reference to? 
Well, the Lord said to my Lord, I'm going to sit your, I'm going to sit you down in the place of authority and all your enemies will be at your feet. He promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Whose son? Romans is clear. The gospel is about the son of God who was descended from David, yes, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been making a scriptural argument, and he's been making claims about himself, but we find out that the claims the whole time are actually true when? Not here, though we should trust him. We find out that they're actually true when he raises from the dead. See, only Lord can do that. Of his own divine righteousness, authority, honor, and power. Because he's worthy. You know, I wanted to, if we had more time, I'd take us over to Revelation chapter 5 and we'd just read it and enjoy it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Right? Strength and honor and power and so on. Jesus is descended from the dead, from David, But the resurrection is the final authoritative display that Jesus is not merely a descendant of David. Every descendant of David goes to the grave. And they stay there, and they're awaiting something. They're awaiting the resurrection of the dead. What Jesus, the son of David, who is David's Lord, will give to him. He's the very son of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does David's Lord do? He, he enters into a covenant with father and son, and then he sits down. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't recline. Make sure, make no mistake, the sitting down is not a lazy boy. All right? It's a sitting down in a place of honor and authority. In theological terms, this is called the session of our Lord. I told you, you're going to have to sit up and pay attention for a couple minutes, all right? The session of of our Lord. The word session is, is a Latin word for the act of sitting, all right? So this is the sitting down of our Lord. In the Apostles' Creed, it writes, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't mean that he's relaxing at the right hand of the Father, but rather he has entered into the honor and authority that the Father has prepared for the Son. Right now, exercising the honor and the authority of the anointed Messiah. And here's the fulfillment of where all this goes. Philippians chapter 9, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is the Christ, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And friends, that that name is not David. The name that is above every name is not David. It's Lord. David knew it. David knew his name wasn't the great name. That's why he speaks of my Lord. And that name has been bestowed upon the Christ. He has accomplished and performed it and shown himself that that's what he was. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is now the seat that Jesus occupies. Jesus is Lord. And there is no other. Jesus is Lord. And friends, what that means is David will bow the knee to Jesus. That's what the scribes didn't yet get. 
And I wonder, friends, if you and I often don't get that either. If you go back to Psalm 110, there's so much encouragement in here. I found an article written by David Mathis. He's the director of Desiring God Ministries. Um, and uh, he did a reflection on someone, Psalm 110. And it's great to have read these first words as they're quoted for us here in Mark chapter 12, back to, Mark, or to Psalm 110. But I hope you've written down Psalm 110 so you can go back and read the whole thing. And what we find is the Lord, Yahweh, makes numerous promises to our Lord. And in those promises, we find our confidence, as is true of any people of a king, that you find your hope and your confidence in your king. And here are the promises. He lists for us, I believe there's eight of them. In verse 1, the Lord will both defeat your enemies and put them under your feet for your everlasting joy. Verse 3, I will work in your people's hearts to follow you gladly not begrudgingly. That's good news. The people are going to follow this king because, well, he's good. Verse 3, I will refresh you continually, not leave you languishing. I paused on that one and I thought, Jesus knows what's coming on the cross. You guys who are here on Good Friday know that we've spent time looking at the word of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the son knows that the father will not ultimately forsake the son. He will not leave him to languish in the grave. Certainly that sustained him to the cross and on the cross. Verse 4, I read it for you, that God is God and he will not change his mind. His covenant promise is sure. The covenant of grace will be executed. I'll defeat leaders who oppose you. I'll repay unbelievers who threaten you. I'll destroy those who mean harm against you. I will give you all you need to endure, and I will preserve you in what is coming upon you. This is our king. And our king has the promises of the Godhead, the agreement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his kingdom to endure. This is why Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, there's good news for that king. And there's good news for his people. Friends, we live in uncertain times around us. There's so much that is shaking in our culture. Lately, I, just recently, I heard a news story, and I actually thought it was satire. And, and it's like headline news. Now, my business isn't to teach the news, but my business is to notice that things are shaking. We live in uncertain times. But this is the counsel and the covenant of heaven itself. There's not debate in heaven. There's declaration. There's covenant. What do we need with the reading of newspapers? What, what, what need do we have of rants on social media posts? I've got one, Psalm 110. And the Lord said to my Lord, gospel things. This isn't just that David's kingdom went quickly in decline. All kingdoms decline. All peoples and kingdoms are ruled and filled with sinners like you and I, and none escape that reality. And the wages of sin is death, and we see it in the decline of cultures throughout all of history. 
But the Messiah, David's Lord, is unlike all the rulers who came before him in that he is perfect in righteousness. And he's not only perfect in righteousness, but he will also cleanse his people. And he will give to them, not their perfect righteousness, but rather his perfect righteousness. And this is what we see Jesus doing in the coming days in Mark. We see him performing the work of sacrifice in place of a people so that they can be brought into his kingdom as a forgiven people and established as a people who will forever bear his righteousness and be there because he has claimed them as his. That is our good news. The call to us this morning is that is that where our hope and faith is. Is that our king? Will we bow the knee before David's Lord? Will we humbly submit to his accusation, you're a sinner and you know it? Will we humbly submit and say, yes, I agree, I, I know. Yeah, I've done a couple good things, but it doesn't matter. I need to be more like David and say, I, I'm a sinner and I know it. And will we humbly submit in that place receiving grace rather than standing up and say, I'll do better next time, I promise. No, we won't. I know me. That's not how I work. But rather, we will submit ourselves to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his cleansing grace, his gift of righteousness, and joy by faith in the presence of his kingdom This passage ends this way, and we need to end this way as well. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. That's the argument. So how is he his son? Well, he is and he isn't. He's so much more. And then it says this, the great throng heard him gladly. That's my question for you this morning. Are you glad? Is this good news? For you. Do you hear him gladly? I think one of the best places to do the business is, uh, of, of gladness is in prayer. God, tutor my heart in prayer to receive your words with faith. And would you turn my mourning into dancing in the presence of David's Lord, my Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, if we who see ourselves as our own sovereigns, who can define ourselves, execute our own ways, find our own happiness in ourselves and by our own means, would ever humble ourselves, it's a work of grace, a miracle. Lord, I pray that you would save your people. Humble us, forgive us of sin, establish us in your kingdom by your call, by your grace. Lord, I pray if there is someone here who is still hanging on to their own pride or perhaps cowering in the shame of their own sin, that you would humble both hearts, cause them to cry out to you a simple prayer of forgiveness, a confession that they would receive forgiveness in the Savior Jesus Christ, and that every one of us would gladly join David in saying, that's my Lord, and we would bow the knee before him and live in the light of the glory of his kingdom forever. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, in the name of our Lord, our Messiah, our Christ Jesus. Amen.